We're in First Timothy. I have uh, in front of me. I have two two small sermons, uh, but it didn't work out last time. I just did one of them. So I have a sermon on um, <clears throat> uh, the role of men and women with regards to the leadership in the church. And then I have uh, a sermon on qualifications for overseers. So we'll push the qualifications to next week and uh, blend, blend it in with next week. And we'll just talk about uh, men and women in the church. I see this as a um, not central to the idea of biblical eldership, but as uh, important for, for us to have one mind or certainly to understand what the Bible says about it. The way I think about it is when I, you and kids, most kids at some point in their life trip and fall and bonk their head and bleeds and they need stitches. Right? That happened to me several times a year. <laughs> <clears throat> And when you need stitches and you go to the doctor to get the stitches, if you are a child like I was, the climax of the trauma is the shot. It's all about the shot. The shot. Just be man enough to make it through the shot. You know, then you're on the other side. The irony is the purpose of the shot was to relieve pain. And yet for a child, it is the climax, right? Because they don't realize what it's saving them from. I mean, the alternative is no shot, I'm just going to sew your head up, right? But we don't, as a child, you don't, and I would, I, I guess, I see this message kind of like the shot. It's not central to the issue. It's not the procedure, right? The procedure is to sew the head up, it gives stitches. I mean, that can be done without the shot. But this helps, Likewise, if we kind of have a, a young perspective on this subject matter, we can see it as a necessary evil, like the shot. In reality, it's a great thing. It's a good thing from the Lord. So uh, we're going we're gonna to spend some time in it this morning, and, and um, if you at all perceive that I'm uncomfortable, uh, it's not so much that, well, I am, duh, uh, but uh, I'm, not so un- I'm not uncomfortable with Jesus, and I'm not uncomfortable with the Word. I just know that there's all sorts of ears that are listening to this subject, and what may be a no-brainer for somebody else, man, is like blowing someone else up, and so I'm uncomfortable because I want to be careful. So interpret my discomfort, my apparent discomfort as, well, he's trying to speak to the word of God to you. Um, Okay, let me show you a few things. This is important when we talk about uh, difficult subjects. It feels less important when it's easy stuff, but when we talk about difficult subjects, how our method of interpretation is very, very important. It's always important, but it's worth thinking about interpretation specifically when we approach a topic uh, that's culturally difficult. And so these are, uh, I guess more could be said, but I think these are are really important for Bible study. And and I I thought about putting them up there because I was never taught this. It just sort of, 
I mean, I'm sure there's books on it, but I had to stumble into this, these sorts of thoughts. So the first one I want to offer you is, is maybe the most important, which is, if it's true, it's good, and it's for your health. If it's true, it's good, and it's for your health. Because on difficult subjects, when we finally get to the godly position, there still is this little bit of an unction inside of us to be internally apologetic about it, or like, well, I guess that's how the Lord is, and I'll submit to the Lord, but man, I sure wish he wasn't such a bigot. We do that. I'll see churches frequently that will have a faithful position on a difficult issue and still apologize for it. Just in their spirit of, you know, well, we're... We're sorry this is the way we are, but unfortunately, it's God. If it's true, it's for your good. Meaning, if it's true and it's lambasting you with difficulty, God is working to make you more than what you already are. And that's really important, is eventually coming to, because every one of us on all, a myriad of subjects will arrive at the word at some point in our life and say, no, it can't mean that, right? And then you get to, well, it means that, but I don't like what it means. Eventually, when you know you have it, when you've embraced it, and it's good, okay? So the difficult teachings of the word, are, even when they're, they're tr- if they're true, they're for your good, They're for your health, and they're for the health of the church. Uh, The second one, what does the text mean? The process of interpretation is more than saying, what does the text say? Though that's certainly important. It's very challenging sometimes, especially in certain translations, just to figure out what do the words, what are these English words that are arranged on the page, what are they actually distinctly trying to say? You know, commas and hyphens and all these sorts of things can get in the way sometimes of what is it trying to say? But even though we've determined what it's trying to say, that doesn't mean we know what it means. What something says and what something means are two different things. And, and, and the teaching of Scripture are words that are written in order to move and change us into the likeness of Christ, which means there's what it, mean, there's what it says, but what is God trying to do with these words? And they certainly work in concert with one another, but a parable is a great example. A parable is always working under the surface to bring you to a question, a difficult question in your own life that may not appear at all like the story that was just told. So what does it say, and then what does it mean? What's the goal of the teaching? And so one of the tools that helps us there is, is what is in the teaching, what is the basis of the teaching, or what is the justification of the teaching? That's very helpful. So a lot of times the Word will give us a teaching, and the teaching's there. And you're like, is that, is that what it does it mean? What it says it means? But then the justification for the teaching comes back around and fills the whole thing up. So a lot of times when we arrive at a teaching, we want to pause and get to the justification for the teaching and then go back again to the teaching. How does the rest of Scripture comment? Scripture is its own best commentary. 
So this morning, we won't, have, I, we won't have time to physically turn pages. I'll say things that are in the Word. But the Word comments on the Word. And we have the great luxury as Bible-believing Christians to say the Word is coherent and in agreement so that I can rely on the Word to build itself up and to defend itself. It's a great place to be. The moment you leave that, the Word is no longer very useful for itself. But if the word is robust and is coherent and is in agreement and is consistent, then it comments on itself. So for the teaching today, and, and it's a kind of a humdinger of a passage, there are other passages in the New Testament that boldly support this passage so that you think, can it mean what it says it means? But, but in 1 Corinthians, it says this, and you know, other areas, it says this, and, 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 and the word comes to its own aid, which is why we need a broad appreciation for what does the word of God say, rather than simply a narrow or deep perspective. And then last issue with interpretation is historical context. Now, historical context is helpful, but it is often a hobby horse for people to get away from the teaching of Scripture. When we read something that is not, is out of tune with our 21st century ears, sometimes what we do inside is we say, well, that can't be right. And so then we look back into history with the perspective of, because this can't be right. So we go digging through the annals of history until we find that one historic fact that confirms our doubts. You see, when we do historical context, it's helpful when it's pure science, when you're just trying to learn. But when there's the hint of agenda in your spirit, we don't know a lot about the past. There's a lot that we don't know. And so sometimes the fragments of what we can know from history can be used to kind of wage a war over the text of the Bible, uh, which subtly disregards what's actually being said. And so while, and I am a, I'm a student of history, I love, I love historical context, so I'm a friend to it, but I've also watched, I've also watched its abuse. I've watched and read its abuse many times uh, when people get to a teaching they don't want to accept that's where they go. It's one of the chief places they go. The number one context that you should pay attention to when you're interpreting is your own. To become, um, to work at understanding the operating worldview that you're living in is a difficult science and will give you more aid in the understanding of Scripture than trying to dig it at a culture in a worldview 2,000 years old. Because right now, just for example, the, the conversation of men and women or life or marriage, you pick the hot topic, pick, pick the hot potato. In our current context, while there's all sorts of ideas flying back and forth, I can, I can look and see the origin of some of these things. Where, where is the origin of some of these thoughts? Yeah. And that's a fairly decent tip-off sometimes as to where it's going to take you. You know, I'm, I, you know, when Planned Parenthood tells me something, I listen. 
because that's an important point of origin for me. Life haters. An industry of murder. I know where this is going. Chances are on the other side of this, no one's life will be better off. So in our own context that we have a pretty decent grasp of, if we can climb out of it and look, seek to be objective, we actually can know this context better, and this one's what's shaping us more than the, the ancient one. So there, okay. All of this is the kind of work that goes into processing and interpreting a passage, especially a difficult passage. And we'll try to do all of this at some measure this morning. Okay, look in your Bibles then at First Timothy chapter 2. Let me say a word about First Timothy. It is what you would call a pastoral epistle. It's a letter written from Paul, an elder, a pastor, to Timothy, an elder and pastor. This is very, very important because the mood, when you read Timothy, it's like writing a letter among friends, okay, and colleagues in a profession, okay, so there's things that they use almost as shorthand. They're brief, they're short, and they're concise, and they're to the point with one, you know, Paul's being shortened to the point, which when it falls on the regular ears of the church can sound abrasive and terse and insensitive. Okay? It's just as how one supervisor might talk to another supervisor and offer wise counsel about coworkers that's never intended for the ears of the co-workers. And everything about that was right, but if it got to the ears of the co-workers, it would sound terse and abrasive. That's a, that is at work in First Timothy. As I, I, often rem, I, I have often felt like, whew, I need to remind myself that this is one person to another in some ways. Um, at least that's the first voice of the letter. And you'll feel that, I think, as we read. <clears throat> Let me read 11, uh, 11 to 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a, a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I suppose I could have picked an easier one. Uh, but, you know, the next verses, qualifications for overseers, man, it's right there. Like, it would seem weird for me to be talking about biblical eldership and to skip that one when talking about men and women. So let's look at the teaching The teaching is in 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Quietly can be seen as uh, peaceably, okay? It certainly has that mood about it. Calm, peaceably, submissive. A woman should foster um, a peaceable, submissive environment around her in the fellowship. And then the 12th verse comes in and stresses the teaching. Okay, so it's, it's almost as though the principle's there in 11, but 12 comes in, and like, in case you missed it, Paul drives it home a little bit more. 
And I think between the two of them, there's things that are a little difficult to reconcile. One is in our fellowship, so in our own life, you'd think, well, if this is true, how does it work in our own life? We don't hush uh, uh, the the women of our church. Um, And I don't think that's the teaching. The meaning of the teaching is that women should be literally silent in the house of God. Nor do we find that Paul does that in his ministry. So there's some relief there. If we love the word to comment on the word, we find that there are, on many occasions, formative uh, women in, in the church who matter. There was a, about four months ago, we were working through Acts, and they talked about Philip had these daughters who were, these virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Well, how do they prophesy? A sign language? They talked. So the issue's not of audible sound. I th- the teaching seems to be more of wave-making. Influence. Where else do you find it? I mean, so when they plant the church in Philippi, they plant the church in the house of a woman named Lydia. There were no Christians in Philippi. The church starts with Lydia, to whom Paul greets in various other letters. Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, church planners, missionaries alongside of the work of Paul, regularly, regularly they're referred to together in the work of the Lord. Working together. Discipling, even. In the 16th chapter of Romans, there's, uh, Paul does a hail and farewell to many of his friends and, and uh, colleagues in Rome. I think 11, I think I counted once, if I remember right, 11 of the by name uh, comments are to women and to the church that meets in her home. So I don't think the word is saying silent in the literal sense. And I think 12 begins to uh, build upon that. The the quiet in 12 is the quiet with regards to the exercise of authority and uh, to teaching. Teaching is, by its own nature, an exercise of authority. Other things that make uh, make, make this difficult to reconcile is our own context We live in a culture, in a time in our culture, where the definition of equality has exploded and blossomed beyond normal views of equality, so that to mean the abolition of distinctives. We can no longer speak about equality of image or equality of essence, because if anything's different, we speak about it as though it's unequal. That's a very unhelpful way of thinking about things. That if things are different, they're not equal. That is not, they're different. They're just different. And the word doesn't seem to have the trouble with that. So God, in the very same breath, can speak of man and women as being co-equal in image, co-equal in essence, co-equal in dignity, co-equal in the prize that they have before Jesus Christ, and at the same time, have different roles and purposes for them. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
he created them. Genesis 127. Paul himself writes in Galatians, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. It's God who rescues Hagar when she's cast out. It's God who selects Mary and Martha. It's God who sends women to the tomb on resurrection day. All through the scripture, it's God who sees the barren. It's God who opens the womb. It's the God who meets the woman who's far away and brings her close. It's the Lord himself who says, who touched me. It's the Lord himself who meets the woman at the well. All through scripture, there is a beautiful tune of dignity that the Lord is bringing to women. The alternative, by the way, in Ephesus would be the temple prostitutes and the temple of Artemis up the hill. That's how women are being treated in Ephesus. We're going to talk about the historical context. Talk about a totally undermining sexist culture that the Christian church is being planted into. For the Christian church to turn to women and say they're not simply instruments of pleasure, but rather they're made in the image of God was countercultural to the Greco-Roman world. For them to do that to women and to slaves and to Gentiles and all sorts of things was turning, turning the Greco-Roman slash Judeo world upside down. That's what Rome had a problem with Christianity about. You read the histories, it wasn't so much Jesus. It was they put slaves next to masters in worship. They elevate women into personhood. So here this seems to be a check, right? Not, it's not that the Lord is insensitive to the nature of men and women. It's the Lord is sensitive to the distinctions of men and women. Because equality and difference are different. So we arrive at uh, the justification for the teaching, verse 13. And 14, there's two, two reasons given. And they both point to uh, Genesis. That tells you something, by the way. So you have a kid, uh, one of your children wants to... They want to go out to eat. They want to go get pizza. And, they, and you say no, and they say why, and you say because, and they say why, and you say because, and you say why, and you say, you say because I'm tired, okay? I'm tired. Okay, that's contextual. That means today is not a good time to go eat, right? But if they want to go to get pizza, and you say no, and they say because, and you say no, and they say because, and you finally say because it's Christmas morning. It's different. Different context, Right? It's a bigger idea. Just like here, if, if he says, women, I do not permit men to teach or exercise authority over man, she, rather she is to remain quiet. And if his reason was, because here in Ephesus, we're really trying to reach a targeted group of people, and if they saw that, they would, they would have really difficult time struggling. That would be a contextual to Ephesus. But what does he say? Adam was made first. 
That is not contextual. That is always relevant to the humankind. I mean, Paul reaches so far back that he trips over the fall into creation. There's nothing wrong there. In other words, he's saying that the ordering of man and women, men and women, was determined in the perfect creation without blemish before there is any critique before the fall. That there's some distinctive there that God in his mystery, and I'll say I can't answer, I can't answer to the mystery of God's creation and all things, but I can say it's here, right? God made man first. In fact, in Genesis, when you read in Genesis chapter 2, you find that the Lord, when he made the man, he gave the man the prohibition, right? He gave the man the charge over the garden, tend this, work this, all of these things you can eat from except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The charge to care for the garden and the prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given to the man before the woman existed. Before she even was, he was under responsibility for the prohibition. That says something. And when he, the Lord determined that it was not good for the man to be alone, he did not go back to the dirt and, and work the dirt to bring up something totally new. Out of Adam he made Eve. That's significant. This is in the theological shorthand of one pastor to another. This is Paul saying to Timothy, this is the way it should be because this is the way it was made to be. That's what he's doing in shorthand. He's saying, think about it. Think about creation. Woman means from man. And then Paul, in the 14th verse, points to the fall as being instructive to the very same idea, which the argument itself, I think, sounds a little bit clunky to our ears or vacuous, maybe. Eve was deceived first. Big, really? I think Paul's saying, think about the fall. Put the picture of the fall in your mind. Like if Adam was given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where was he when Eve was tempted? Why did we need a second Adam to come crush the head of the serpent? Why didn't the first Adam do it? Why wasn't he there? He was. So it says in Genesis chapter 3. It says that the woman took the fruit and ate it and gave it to the man who was with her. Like, blow that up in your mind. What in the world was he doing? It's sick. It's dark. What was he doing watching her? Was she a test subject? I, I seriously wonder if he was just like, she lived. Okay. Okay, I'll eat it. What an utter abdication of his responsibility is happening there at the tree. This is what Paul points to. He says, Timothy, remember how God made it and remember how it went south. Do you know, later on that day in the cool of the evening when the Lord comes walking through the garden and he says, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you 
fig leaves. It says, and the Lord said to the man, did you eat? If the woman was the first, why does the man take the rap for it? Because he's responsible. Why do we carry in us the sin of Adam and not the sin of Eve? Because Adam's responsible. Why is Jesus second Adam and not second Eve? Because Adam was responsible. Whether or not he led well is immaterial. What is material is God made him first and God put him in, made him responsible for the caring leadership of the garden and for the woman who was given to him. That is unambiguous in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, when the curse is being handed out, it's handed out to the serpent, then it's handed out to the woman, and then it's handed out to the man. And this is, the, this is how the prelude into the words of the man. The Lord said, because you listened to the woman and ate. I'm cursing you. I think Paul is pointing to something that is beyond context when he gives this teaching here. Think about Adam. Think about Eve. Think about how God made it. This is how God intends for it to be. Now, why this follows into the church, okay? So I certainly appreciate, I have a greater sense of appreciation. The mystery of how God made us is I don't understand. I like it. I, will, I like how God made women. I'm all for that. Um, and, but I don't understand it. Like, why, did, you know, why don't we have four arms? And I mean, there's all sorts of mystery as far as how God's creative purposes and everything. But nonetheless, in marriage, the clarity of Adam and Eve surfaces all the more, right? Adam is the head of Eve, just as Christ is the head of the church, just as the husband is the head of the wife. I mean, that is consistent and unambiguous throughout all of Scripture. Um, the fact that it shows up in church is a little odd for me. Not odd, but there's another layer of mystery. And, and I would say this, and, and this is one of the ways that I think if it's true, it's good for us. This is the way that I put my arms around this teaching. Is the Lord, I believe the Lord desires this fellowship in the way it is structured to affirm the way families are structured. To, fa- to people who come to Christ, they need somewhere to see what is it like. I believe the church should be a place where uh, the pattern of the home has a resemblance to the pattern of the home, that we are a family of God in that sense, and, and that matches the order, the way the church is ordered. All right, I'll get to verse 15. I'm just building up courage. Okay, so verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let me offer a little bit of insight of uh, what many think is happening at the time. So here's that historical context. There seems to be a good, I mean, a healthy case can be made that in this church and some like it, like Corinth, There was a thinking alive 
that the way to be holy, there was only the path towards God, godliness meant learning and teaching. Learning and teaching. And that women may have been tempted out of their traditional roles. Tempted in the way of saying, like, I'm not good enough unless I'm doing that, okay? Uh, unless I'm teaching, or unless I have a word. It appears as though, in, in various, I'll give you a few examples. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is right on the way into the use and misuse of gifts. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul spends quite a bit of time talking to people who want to look holy, and the, the way that they think they're holy is by doing certain things. You see, there's a pattern here, which is, like, I can't be good in just the way God made me, in the way I got made. I have to do that thing or look that part. And on the front end of that is a conversation about two women about how they ought to dress and regard themselves, which almost seems irrelevant unless women were trying to adopt the look of men. I don't mean to actually look like a man, but to unisex the environment. We can certainly identify with this in our culture. The, the desire to unisex it. In other words, really, the women ought to be seeking and desiring and doing the very things that the men are doing. And Paul has to check that in 1 Corinthians 11. And he uses this language. He says, no churches, no churches in, that are meeting do what you're doing. Like, what is this, is the way his letter is. That's, that's instructive. He does it again in 1 Corinthians 14 at the end of the teaching. He says, all churches everywhere uh, and this, he's summarizing the whole teaching, but all churches everywhere are behaving this way. And then he goes to distinctly describe how men and women ought to behave together in that environment, which is in close concert with 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy, there is, if you read through the book, like you were assigned for homework, if you read through the letter, you'll find several times that he refers to, charges Timothy to teach well, and then somewhere alongside will show up a teaching like, uh, this bad teaching will enter into the house and ears of women and draw them astray. If you read the letter, it's, it's like, huh, didn't see that coming. And there's at one point that he counsels young widows, can you please encourage them just to go get married and make a family? And some wonder if there was a vibe in some of these churches early on that was trying to uproot women away from the ways that God has made them. So it was not so much a force of saying you need to stay in the kitchen and you need to stay pregnant. That's not the teaching of 15, but rather, rather you don't need to be something else which I think we certainly can appreciate as, as a tune in our own culture that is constantly on the radio. Of you're not, a, a woman is not who she ought to be. She almost has to diminish the home, almost diminish the children, almost diminish the dream inside the walls and all that's happening. It has to be, yeah, you can do that, but you can do so much else. You're so much more than that. Well, something costs something in this life. I think that's more to the point of what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is, they don't need to be different. 
They need to be all of who they are in the way God has made them, and that is sufficient for the Lord. There doesn't need to be this constant aspiring to have, in a non-gendered way, that gift or that talent or to be that kind of person, that the church shouldn't be the sort of place that makes that thing, but rather the church marvels in distinctives, marvels in differences, and celebrates them, and that the church is better for it. Isn't that not the teaching of giftedness in Corinthians? All sorts of giftedness. Paul's like, why does everybody want to have the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues? All these big gifts. He says, there's all sorts of parts to the body of Christ. What you want to be is at home in the way God made you. This, I believe, is towards the heart of this teaching, that Paul is... Paul is not trying to push them back into the home. Paul is trying to restore the noble purpose. I mean, if, if mankind and culture can undermine childbearing in the life of women, that is dark. I mean, how special is that? How distinctive is that? How natural is that? Like we have, I love kids, but I don't love them until they're like six months old. Before that, I'm all for wet nurses and nannies. I mean, but my, my, but we're different by design and we can see it. And we praise God for it. And we don't aspire to be equal in all things. We esteem one another equally before the Lord and celebrate his vibrant imagination. And I think this is what's at play here, is God made men in a certain way for a certain purpose that should be celebrated. And in a church that does it well, men will attain to the right sort of thing. Right? There's always sinful variants of abdication and oppression that we'll always see because sin is always among us until Christ comes home. God made men a certain way. Hold it high. And God made women a certain way. Hold it high. Don't just flatten it all. All right. I am fully aware that outside the walls of this fellowship, everything you just heard was bigoted. Um, We are not of this world. We are not. But we redeem this world when we shine the way Christ intends us to. I pray that in the right ways and in forms and fashions, you might be able to share this truth with love uh, to a world that is broken and hurting and flat. Let's pray. Lord, be with us, I pray. Be with each ear, each set of ears that took this in. Lord, I am aware of how eclectic our fellowship is. Uh, so I hasten, Lord, to remind, remind all of us that your God and your spirit speaks and your word is true. And when it's true, it's good. 
Bless us, Lord, in the peaceful way that, that this church has experienced uh, one another in the past. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would preserve the right things. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>